Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Next Gen Dems. I am your host, Curtis Wild. I'm an elected DNC member, and I am also running for state representative in House District 107 in Missouri. Here, I have a extremely special podcast, a magnificent panel of not myself, but three other DNC members. So there are four DNC members on this episode of Next Gen Dems, which before we get into you guys, I am going to introduce you, but you can check us out. Be sure to add us and like us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and all the other social medias out there. Check us out. But we are sitting here with Ron Harris. Ron Harris first, and usually I go ladies first, but on this one, you're my right-hand man, and I'm going to introduce you first because you are the chair of the Midwest Caucus in the DNC, and and you're really making waves. Ron is a great guy. He is also an elected DNC member, um, and I'd like you to, to introduce yourself and tell people a little bit more about you. Hey, thank you, man. I'm super excited to be on the show. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, my name is Ron Harris. I'm from Minnesota. I was elected to the DNC in the summer of 2016. Um, I previously ran for the DNC in 2014, uh, and we in Minnesota, we elect our members at our state convention. And I ended up losing that first race by eight votes, uh, eight total votes. And I just made a commitment after that that I wanted to do this again. Uh, the second time that I ran, we made more than that as a difference. Uh, doubled the second place finisher in terms of the votes. And so I got a little bit of retribution there. And I'm just happy to be a part of the DNC. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Ron Harris. Uh, Megan. Would you prefer Megan Green or Megan Aaliyah Green? Because, Megan Aaliyah Green. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Megan, Megan Green Aaliyah is too Green common of a name. <laughs> is not only an elected DNC member from Missouri, but she is an alderwoman in St. Louis for which? The which ward? 15th Ward. The 15th Ward. And she is actually running for president of uh, city council. Yes, president of the Board of Aldermen is what we call it in, in the city of St. Louis. of the Board of Aldermen. So, uh, how are things going in St. Louis? Are uh, you coming along with your race? How's that? We are. I mean, we had our campaign kickoff just this past week. I uh, had a really good turnout of about 150, 160 people that showed up. There seems to be a lot of energy and a lot of people that really want to change St. Louis. And so, I'm really looking forward to being able to bring forth that change. Awesome. Awesome. Also, we have Genevieve Williams. Genevieve Williams is the chair of the Missouri, De or the vice chair of the Missouri <laughs> Democratic Party. I know you have aspirations, so I, um, read your mind. Uh, <laughs> but she is the vice chair of the Missouri Democratic Party, and she is also on the DNC. Genevieve Williams, introduce yourself. My name is Genevieve Williams, and I'm the vice chair of the Missouri Democratic Party. And uh, because of that, all chairs and vice chairs have a seat on the DNC. So, DNC member by default. Outstanding. Well, we are here in uh, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and we are making some change, some positive progress right here at the DNC. So let's let's get into it. I don't just want uh, me explaining this thing to the people. I want you guys telling me how this thing went. So how is the DNC going for you? Uh, what do you think of the Unity Reform Commission? Yeah, so I'll start by, you know, I think the DNC is going really, really well. I think I really appreciate the new direction of the DNC. I appreciate all the new officers that were elected. Um, I campaigned really, really hard for Keith Ellison, as you know, uh, but I'm happy with the direction that Tom Perez and the rest of the officers are taking with the party. Uh, they're working really, really hard to open this up. They're working really hard to make it more transparent. Uh, we're working really, really hard to make it more inclusive so that we can build back some of the trust that was lost over the last few years, uh, particularly the last eight years of the DNC. Um, as we're all aware of, there was a lot of trust that was lost in the 2016 primaries. 
and I'm really appreciative of the Unity Reform Commission's efforts to build back some of that trust. And so there's a lot of um, both real and perceived um, infractions that have happened. And I just Let's talk about some of those infractions real quick. Sure. So there are folks who feel like uh, their candidate, Senator Sanders, was uh, essentially the rules are rigged against them. And uh, whether that's real or perceived, it doesn't matter, right? Perception exactly. becomes reality. Exactly. And it's incumbent upon us as a national party to both recognize that, that, that people feel that way, recognize that people, you know, are pointing to instances that, again, they feel like they were impacted, and that we have to make a difference and make that sort of a change. And so if we're really committed to being a party for, the people need to understand is that the Democratic Party isn't just for Democrats. The Democratic Party is for all people, all Americans. And if we're going to hold true to that as a promise, we do need to make some commissions and we do need to build back some more trust. Absolutely, absolutely. Megan? I mean, I'll, I agree a lot with, with what Ron said. I, I think one of the things that gives me a lot of optimism about our party is, is over the last few days, the things I've heard over and over and over again are millennials are now the largest voting block. We really need to engage more young folks, more millennials in our party, that they are the future of the Democratic Party. We need to be listening to the issues that matter to them. And, and to me, you know, as a millennial who's newly elected to the DNC, that, that matters a lot because I feel like I, you know, I'm here to represent a group of folks who don't trust political parties. Yeah. And, um, and... And why should they? Why should they? It's a whole lot of what have you done for me lately. I, you know, look at the position that we're in in this nation. I mean, I, I think it's a lot of if, you, if you've never been involved with your Democratic, you know, local club or township or whatever it is, and then suddenly, you know, you come in a, a presidential primary year and you're trying to figure out, you know, I like this candidate. How do I get involved? How do I do something? You know, you have a lot of folks that have been involved for a really long time and who aren't necessarily always as welcoming as we, we would like to be for new people to get involved. You know, how do you make space for that new energy, the grassroots energy, the young energy? Um, while also allowing the ability to learn, right? So when you have new people coming in, they don't come with all of the institutional knowledge. And so, so how do you balance that? Right. And, and one of the things I think that has given me a lot of optimism is just seeing how much of a commitment that the party's really doing in terms of millennial engagement, young people engagement, recognizing that we can't just talk to the quote-unquote frequent voters. We have to be out there engaging people who agree with our values yeah. and, and don't necessarily turn out to vote. There's a reason that people started believing that their voice didn't count. And it was because we stopped listening, or at least stopped showing that we're listening. And we're going to change that. That's what we're here for. Genevieve? Oh, I've been really encouraged. Um, since my first CNC meeting, it's been kind of a uh, rocky uh, ride, I would say. I'm just sort of trying to understand everything since we are new uh, and sort of get up to speed. But one of the things that I've been really struck with, uh, all the way down into the local and county committee level, we're coming out of all of this stronger and more unified. And we've really kind of learned these skills in struggling again, like with inside of the party that we're then able to go out and like really become laser focused on a lot of these races. And I don't mean on specific targeted races, but all of the races that we're engaging in. And I can really see those skills of like what you were saying, that the kind of newer folks are gaining that institutional knowledge People that are really seasoned are starting to see value in the new, that if, maybe if they didn't, a lot of people did to begin with. But um, 
I think in all of that kind of coalescing and coming together, you can see it now in the special election wins that we've been having all over the country in very red states, in areas that we weren't competitive in at all before. But there's a story underneath those special election wins, and we've experienced that in Missouri, is that we have gotten so close on a lot of our special elections in that we're pulling like 30-point swings into losing by, you know, a percentage point or two. So I can or really look at see Mike it Rivas. in the what results. Was Mike numbers? Yeah. What was, what I don't, I don't know. I think yeah, it was like remember, a 15, was, 20 was, point yeah, swing. Yeah, it was a huge swing. It was a very large swing. Yeah. And he won. But so, we had a couple that didn't actually make that mark, but really got uh, an amazing swing. Close. So I think we're really, It's. I don't want to get ahead of, you know, put the, put the cart ahead of the horse, but I think we're really uh, getting it together. And I'm, I'm really, uh, really optimistic. I absolutely agree. I think Megan touched on something that was very important, and it's that, uh, a lot of people want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? They, they just want to burn the house down, but they don't realize that we're in it now. We're in the house, so don't burn it down. Let, let's figure out how we can make it work to the best of our ability for everybody. Um, but what what I'm seeing in the DMC is a great mixture uh, starting to develop of newer voices and institutional knowledge. Uh, they, I'll call them the legacies, the, the legacy Democrats that have been here before us doing the work. And, uh, yeah, maybe some of them did feel a little threatened uh, when we came in and said, hey, we're going to do some work, too, because um, we didn't really give a choice. You know, we were going to be here, and we were going to try and try to do the best we could. Uh, and I believe that somewhere along the way, even though many of us were viewed uh, and perceived as disruptors, they saw that we we're here to help. They saw that we we're here to make sure that Democrats and Democratic values and the best things that we can do for America happen. And that's a powerful stance to be on. That's a powerful position to have. Um, so what I'm seeing is, like, I have a mentor within the BNC, uh, Cordelia Lewis-Burke. Shout out. Hi, Cordelia. Indiana. Uh, Indiana. Indiana. And what's important for folks to realize is that as Democrats, whether if you're seasoned or new or progressive or moderate or more conservative, as a Democrat, we all have one singular goal, which is we want the best parties we yeah. may have different routes by which we go about that. We may have different tactics by which we go about that. But if we could recognize as all of us, right, or like, again, seasoned or whatever, that we have the same goal of making the best party as possible, that should go a long way in terms of being able to hear each other in terms of different tactics and different roles and strategies, right, because we want the best party possible. Yeah, that's it. And I think that's what we're seeing with the Unity Reform Commission. I, I think that there was a lot of resistance for a lot of it, and people will even agree if they watch the videos of the Reform Commission in action as it was happening. There was a lot of tugging and, uh, you know, pulling back and forth, uh, a lot of tension going on in those rooms. And, and the fact is that tension was there because we're trying to develop the best party for the people. And yeah, we may have fallen off the wagon along the way, but we're getting back on the wagon. We're getting back on the wagon, and we need uh, regular people to step up run for office everywhere they possibly can, and if they want to make a change, they have to be that change, and we're trying to be that example. Um, so, and I, and oh, I think one of the important things about the Unity Commission, too, is is they're listening, right? You know, yeah. the things that the Unity Commission have really focused on, you know, looking at our primary and caucus system, how do you make it easy for people to vote, looking at the role of superdelegates. Like, these are the things that we heard, you know, during the primary election and continue to hear after. And so knowing that that Unity Commission has really laser focused their efforts on addressing these issues that we've heard 
you know, from the grassroots ever since the primaries, I, I think bodes well for the party. Uh, it's, it should be demonstrating that we really are listening and we really, you know, we want to make the changes that need to happen. Yeah. Think about this, right? Curtis, you mentioned there's a lot of tension in a lot of these processes, right? And I'm of the strong opinion that growth happens through tension. Right? Yeah. Yep. You, in order to grow a muscle, you got to tear some of the fibers. You're too comfortable. Yes. They, right. So for the first yeah. time, right, based on the uniform commissions and then the report by our rules and bylaws committee, for the first time as a party, we have made a commitment with a vote, with an affirmation that we will reduce the, the impact and influence of unpledged delegates. Again, real impact or perceived impact. That doesn't matter. We, Unpledged we delegates for most of my viewers, super delegates is what you're going to call them. Super delegates, exactly. Uh, so that's we made a commitment. Known as. We made a commitment as a party to reduce those things. Yeah. That should be the biggest sign so far that we're listening as a party. Yeah. Well, well what do you guys think about that specific uh, line of it, it, the reduction of the super delegates on pledged delegates? Well, let's start with Genevieve. No, I think it's absolutely an appropriate step at this point. I think that. Uh, the will of the electorate was made really clear that a lot of people, like as you said, whether real or perceived, um, were not happy with the process and the way that people were um, able to go in and kind of usurp the will of uh, the electorate. And I think it's a really appropriate step since we are the Democratic Party uh, to make things more democratic. I'm not really sure exactly how what it's going to look like in the end because there's a lot of different plans on the table as far as what we're going to do with the unpledged or super delegates but i think no matter what we end up doing there's no there's no plan on the table that horrifies me so i'm gonna i'm gonna have a little bit of a difference of opinion on this and i and i and i and i probably don't share the point of view of a lot of uh you know progressives on this issue i think that the the problem is not necessarily with the unpledged 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 delegates the problem is the timing by which they pledge Okay, um, I would agree with that. And yeah. because I I would think that some folks in the Republican Party were sitting there as Donald Trump was nearing getting, you know, becoming the Republican nominee and are thinking, we wish we had these superdelegates that could come in and put a stop to this. And they didn't have that, that checks and balance. And, and I think so if, you know, we ended up having our Donald Trump come from the left, that there there is a time and a place... In a, in a role for those unpledged, unpledged delegates to be able to step in and say, you know, th- this isn't in the best interest of the country. With that said, you know in I 2016, think... that would have been Bernie Sanders. I, I think that the problem is when those pledges are happening before the primary season yeah. is over. And the, the, the media is reporting it as, you know, this candidate is so far ahead on delegates because they're putting in all of these... Uh, these super delegates into that count, and, and so I think going forward, what what we need to focus on is if we are party officials, officials, we really have to be neutral during the primary. That it is it is not our role to take a side and to cast those votes at the convention at the end of all of the primary and caucus season, so that we're not perceived as swinging an election in favor of one uh, candidate or the other. And still having that safeguard in case we get a candidate that um, that really we need to stop. Can you explain how that can sway an electorate uh, having their, that perceived uh, thumb on the, the scale? Well, I, I think it's about momentum, right? You know, the 
the energy tends to always go this the swing voters, the independent voters, the the folks who aren't quite as engaged, they go where the momentum's going and people want to be on the, the winning team. And so if you see that, oh, well, this candidate is, you know, a thousand delegates ahead because all of those uh, super delegates have been factored into that equation when, in effect, it's actually much closer if you just looked in the, looked at the state delegates that are being, you know, apportioned during the, the actual primary and caucus process, you would have had a different, I think, understanding of where the momentum actually was in this in this last election. Absolutely agree. And on the other side of that aspect, from a different perspective a little bit, you're going to see uh, someone getting getting uh, pushed. Someone getting pushed. I'm going to use a, a term for professional wrestling. When, when someone gets to, to go on to a higher level, they're getting pushed. A lot of people see someone who isn't their candidate getting pushed, and they throw their hands up, they walk away, they become disenfranchised, and, and they feel like their voice isn't being heard. Um, so there was a lot of that going on. I think, especially like with California, when you announce the results the night before, some people aren't going to vote the next day. They're going to throw their hands up and they're going to walk away. So what do we do to avoid that? I do mean, you think this will do it? I, do I think, think I think it? it's a step. I think that there's definitely that contingency that thinks that you know, super delegates should just be gone from the process. And I think that there's a role for them. And our role needs to be to maintain neutrality throughout the primary and caucus system and then be there as a safeguard um, in the event that what if, what if a candidate dies or has a you know extreme medical issue and for some reason has gotten all the way through this process and then is is really not fit to be our nominee? There has to be some kind of system. I or think just like health issues and that candidate is like collapsing prior to the primary. Right. I mean, there. I think that there's a there's a safeguard function for us. The function should not be uh, giving a perception that one candidate is is more ahead than another candidate until the voters have been able to weigh in. What would you guys say to people, and I'm already seeing a little bit of this on, on some of the reactions from Facebook, uh, people who are, are telling us that we're kicking the can down the road with this Uniform, uh, Unity Reform Commission uh, because we didn't vote on it this time. Uh, I got a more firm understanding of it personally, but where do you guys feel on that? Uh, what are we doing here? Look, if it is in our advantage to solve it as soon as possible, right? Uh, there's no advantage as a party, there's no advantage as being two members to delay the process. So if we are delaying, and by the way, we're not delaying the process. We didn't set a timetable. We said before the midterms, we would have this solved. It's not the midterm. We are, we're not at the midterm elections yet. So to those who think that we're kicking the can down the road, that's actually a harder thing to keep up than it would be just to solve it this weekend. So what that tells me is that this is a very complex problem. And complex problems require complex solutions. And so if we're going to address this the right way, if we're going to make sure that, again, our party is strong, if we're going to make sure that we right some of the wrongs that people felt that we had done, if we're going to make sure that people have trust in our party again, I need to ask people to give us a little bit of time to make sure we do. Right? I honestly think that that is um, sort of emblematic of the internal communication issue that we're having um, in the DNC. So we've known since the like, beginning of this process that we were not going to be voting on the Unity Report Commission um, report at this meeting. And I think that for some reason, and I think it's obvious that the reason is 
folks have kind of latched onto that because they're kind of looking, because they're upset and they're hurt and they're angry still. And so they're looking for anything that they can grab to and hold on to and say, oh, this is, here's this, here, oh, they're doing it again, you know? Yeah. So I think that that right there is, is sort of a lesson for all of us to go out and make sure that people are understanding the process that we're going through these meetings and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to vote on this in the summer. We knew that. I mean, we knew that. Uh, I'm going to push back just a little bit. Um, I actually don't think it was internal communications that was the issue. I think that when you've lost trust yeah. in a relationship, whether it's a friend, a partner, a party, a colleague, or whatever, you don't have a lot of space for grace. Yeah, exactly. Right? So what this whole thing tells me is that let's work our tails off to make sure we build up that trust Very because bad. if we were trusted as members and if we were trusted as a party, that grace would be there. Yeah. Right now, we're not operating out of a space Look, of trust. I think communication is part of earning that trust back and yep. saying, hey, this is what we're doing. Um, you know, This is what we're going to be doing at the next meeting. Here's, I just got my 30-day notice. Here's my seven-day notice. Right. I think that would really go a long way in trying to earn back that trust. Just right. as using that same analogy in an interpersonal relationship, where you say, hey, you know, this is what's going on. I, I, do, I do think, in, in fairness to the party, I think that you know, Chairman Perez has done an exemplary job of communicating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do think that still we run into uh, sometimes the media spin, right? That That's looking for a conflict that maybe doesn't actually exist. Yeah. And we saw that a couple meetings ago when we didn't uh, put the corporate money ban back in place. And the way that it was spun in the media of, oh, Democrats are continuing, you know, their corporate money. When when if you were actually at the meeting and paying attention that there were problems within that resolution, was, which was the reason we didn't pass it then. That, so let's pull that, the curtain back. Tell the people what those problems were. So, I, I mean, a lot of it is, is that initial resolution would have banned us from taking money from organizations like Planned Parenthood. And, and ones that are actually aligned labor. with our values and yeah. labor. And, and, and we don't want to, we don't want to, right. We don't want to kneecap us in that way. And yeah. so, so when you recognize those problems and then you make a commitment to say, well, we'll table it at this meeting. We'll bring it back at the next meeting. We'll fix those issues. And then we passed it. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes the, the media spins things in, in ways that aren't necessarily fair. And, and I, I think that we need to give kudos to our, our chair, who I think really has done a good job at, at managing this and, and definitely communicating with membership. Well, I think there's something to be said about, uh, I, I think you would all agree that when we came in, well, you came in before a lot of us, right? How long have months. you been here? Uh, yeah. I was like in June of 16. June of 16. All right. So, but you got politically involved well before that. You were politically a couple years involved as an 18, 19 year old kid. Right? I was. I was. We um, are going to get to an awesome story here <laughs> real soon because um, I am chomping at the bit. We heard it last night. It is a fantastic story and it will put tears in your eyes. Um, but I think that, that what, it, before I came here, I was like, what are we doing? If we're not going to vote on this thing, why are we going to, like, are we just going to talk? Are we going to glad him? What are we doing? So it didn't uh, happen until the end of the meeting, but I finally got my answer. And it was after we uh, pushed it forward. We, we agreed that the Union Reform Commission uh, uh, recommendations, we would push forward. They said, we're going to take from now until the next meeting, send as many emails as you want, send as, many, as much correspondence, give us as many calls as you want. We want to hear from you on what you want to see in this Unity Reform Commission. So when they told me that, I realized the purpose of us being here. Uh, and, and I realized that 
it's a process. It's a process. Progress never happens quickly. Uh, so, so it kind of eased my mind, and hopefully people who are watching at home can hear that, and it'll ease their mind a little bit too, because that's exactly what's happening. We, we motioned it forward. We're going to have some discussion on it. All of us have the opportunity to reach out to the DNC and to tell them how we would like to see it change or how we would uh, like to see it improve, because we have no intention uh, to damage it, and we want it to be better. Um, just like the Democratic Party, you know? It also gives us an opportunity as DNC members to reach out to our constituents and say, like, you know, what are your opinions on certain aspects of the elections? Exactly. And I think I can attest, you're going to have to speak up a little bit. I Sorry. got this mic crank. Um, <laughs> I think I can attest to the fact that, um, that we are, are getting there. We are getting there. Um, and a lot of people aren't seeing it, but they're going to see it because we're going to keep, keep at it. We're going to keep going. This is really important to know. Us as DNC members, we aren't paid. Uh, we have to raise the money to get out to these trips. Um, this is a volunteer role. No one is doing this full-time, and if they are, they're not getting compensated full-time for this weekend. And so if we're going to these meetings and we're doing this work, it is with the vested interest and the singular goal of continuing to win elections to improve people's lives. Absolutely that is it. Right. That is why we're here. Absolutely right. St. Louis. St. Louis. There is a whole lot going on in St. Louis. Did you want to talk about that, or do you, do you want to wait until we can do a separate podcast, because we will absolutely do that if you'd like. Let's do a different podcast just to we'll focus on St. Louis right. issues. Right on, right I want to watch that. And, okay. and we can focus on, on DNC stuff today. Outstanding. <laughs> well, I had originally invited Ron, but I was not going to turn down two more DNC members from Missouri for being on the show because that's a big deal for me. That's a big deal for the uh, uh, viewing audience, I think, uh, to see the transparency and, and to hear us speaking directly to them and telling them to speak directly to us. Um, Ron. So you told me a great story last night, and I want this audience to hear it, man, because it changed your life. Changed my whole it life. It changed your life, and it changed our nation. It changed the way that certain people perceive uh, their their superpower. You found your superpower. I think so. I think so. Um, and it's kind of a long story, but you know, I shared last night how I've been I, doing ninety minute episodes, and we're at about a half hour right now. Rocket. All right. So the question was, you know, someone asked me last night, Ron, how did you get into politics? Or how did you find yourself into this work? Um, and I thought about it, and it's a pretty interesting story. Um, I was a senior in high school at a majority white high school in a majority white city. Um, I grew up in a single-parent home. Uh, my mother raised me and my little brother, and then along the way adopted another little girl, and then eventually got remarried. But... Although my father was in my life, I still was in a single-parent home and uh, living in a mostly white area. So my senior year, uh, I don't know what happened, but I got a bit of an identity crisis. I didn't know who I was. My clothes didn't fit right. I didn't look right in the mirror. Uh, my friends didn't seem like my friends anymore. Life just did not feel familiar at all. And I could not figure out where it was coming from. I was a couple of months from graduating high school. I didn't know what college I was going to go to. It was just a bit of a mess. Not, not many people know this, so I'm a little nervous. Sharing a public and that was right around the age that you're finding yourself. 18 years old. 17, 18 years Absolutely. old, you're finding yourself. Yeah. Um, I graduated high school in 2008 um, at the peak of the of the primary season back then. Uh, at the time, uh, Senator Hillary Clinton and Senator Barack Obama were running for president. 
And I got into Hampton University, which is a historically black college and university, on a full-ride academic scholarship. And one of the stipulations for maintaining that scholarship was to, uh, I had a lot of prep reading to do before I even got to the school. And one of the books that they sent me was The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama. And at that time, I had kind of been paying attention to the primary, but not really. And because I had to read this book, I opened it up and I kind of dove right into it. I knocked it out in like a night. I ran through that book. The next day, I remember going to the library and checking out his first book, Dreams of My Father. And in that book, Dreams of My Father, he talks a lot about his own personal identity crisis, right? He grew up as a biracial black kid in Hawaii to two, uh, his two white grandparents. His father wasn't in his life. Um, and so I saw a lot of his, I saw a lot of elements of my life in his life. And for the first time in my whole life, I finally saw myself in somebody else where I, I felt like it fit again. Right, I felt like I found myself. So I get to Hampton again, which is an historically black college. So about ninety-five percent of the student body is black. And because I read these books by this guy Barack Obama, I was fired up. So I, once a week, maybe twice a week, I would go to the local Democrat office in Virginia and knock doors and phone call. I go out there by myself. I didn't care. <laughs> and then I started to get people in my in my dorm involved. Right. So a couple of us would go once a week, once every other week, um, to go and knock on doors for this guy. Towards the end of the campaign. Practically the entire dorm was going uh, to knock on doors for this guy, Barack Obama. You set the example. Tried to. It takes uh, that. And it's funny because we were organizing without knowing that we were organizing. Right? I didn't know what organizing meant. I'm just, I told people that I was fired up about somebody and I got everybody else to come, you know, and join me in this journey. Uh, I'll never That's forget. politics it does, right? And you always remember your path to participation. You always remember who set you on the path. But if you're involved in politics, you know exactly how you got there. Right, and, and this is how I got there. So fast forward throughout the course of the election, and this is the night before the election. So traditionally in campaigns, the night before, you're just knocking every door you can, dropping lid everywhere. There's no targeting, you're just gonna go everywhere, flood the neighborhoods, parts of the states, everywhere. And that is called get out the vote. Get out the vote, GOTV. <laughs> and I remember the night the night before the election, uh, it was super dark, and they sent me to some rural part of the city, rural part of the state, excuse me. Um, in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, I probably should, I had no business being out there in rural Virginia, but I didn't care. I was fired up about this guy, Barack Obama. Yeah. And I'm knocking doors and I'm not really getting a lot of responses, but I don't care. I'm hitting the doors. I'm dropping all literature. And I get to one door and I knock on this door and all of a sudden this guy kicks the door open and he has a weapon in his pocket and he shows it to me like, get the F off my lawn. Right. And he called me a slur, a racial slur. And in that moment, I remember shivering. I remember my hand shaking. I remember being terrified. And in that moment, I realized that what we were working on was so much bigger than ourselves. It was so much bigger than myself as an individual. Right? And, and, and I made a commitment that I'm like, I can't stop tonight, and I sure won't stop tomorrow. So the next day... No, no, no. Let's stop right there. You get in the car, you're shaking, you call mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get in the car, and I call my mother, and I, I, I tell her what happened, you know? And she, you know, she's a bit of a worrywart, but um, she instilled in me a lot of confidence, right? They're like, you're doing the right thing, right? This is not supposed to be easy. This is this is history with me and you, right? And I remember that. And so I get the next day to the election, and I remember it being raining. And we were worried on campus that, like, because it was raining, that students were going to go and vote because in Virginia at the time, they didn't have polling places on our college campus. And so we got some folks, got some folks, organized vans, People were driving vans back and forth on campus, off campus, making sure kids got the opportunity to go and vote. Thanks. 
all day long until the rain stops. So naturally, the watch party's in my room for the election night, <laughs> and we're all in there chilling. We're just watching the, the things come in, and we had decided before the before the polls even closed that hey, we worked hard, guys. This is fun. This is the closest that any person of color, any black person, has ever gotten to winning the White House. We're claiming victory. Absolutely. Never ever thinking that this could ever happen, and we were resolved in that. I wouldn't have been devastated if it didn't happen. So we're watching the we're watching this come in, and I remember watching uh, uh, MSNBC or CNN. I can't remember which one. And out of nowhere, they called Virginia for the president. Well, they called Virginia for Senator Obama. And we were ecstatic because we felt like we had made a difference. Right? Our campus made a difference. Organized, got people to get out there and talk to people, phone calls, all of it didn't matter. And they were like, wow, we won Virginia. Like, I can't tell you the last time Virginia went blue, right? Virginia went for Democrats. Then 11 minutes later, they called the election for Senator Obama. And for the first seven, eight seconds after that announcement, it was complete silence. You could hear a pin drop. Nobody moved. Nobody, nobody blinked. Everyone just sat there frozen. It felt like 10 minutes, but it was actually only about eight seconds. The world had just changed. The world had just changed, but we didn't realize it. And then all of a sudden, on that ninth second, you could hear the campus erupt in euphoria. Like you could hear a mile away just noise and cheering and laughter. And we all ran outside, and we were dancing and singing and crying and hugging random strangers. Um, this was the night before my birthday, the night before my 19th birthday. And I, and my phone was blowing up. People were calling me and texting me. They're like, happy birthday, Ron. We just gave you the best birthday gift you could ever get. We voted because of you. Like, we really wanted to nail this victory for you. And I'll never forget that feeling of euphoria. And I made a commitment that night. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing in my life, but I got to do something like this. I got to stay involved in this, right? The feeling that we had accomplish the impossible, right? As kids, as college kids, you didn't know nothing. And, and that's exactly how you felt. You felt like you would change the world. First, you felt like you would change Virginia. Right. And, and I was then you felt like you changed the world. Well, I mean, first you felt like we changed our dorm. Then we yeah. felt like we had changed our college campus, that everybody was so aware of what was going on around them. They were aware of the moment. Yeah. And then changing the, 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 changing the state and then changing the world. All because we went out and talked to people about what we really believed in. Right? And it provides a blueprint for how we move forward next, right? And so after that, that was it for me. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing something like this. This is my world. This is my world. This is where I And ever since then, stayed involved at whatever capacity that I could, just kind of kept showing up, um, kept trying to make a difference um, with the mindset that politics is about improving people's lives, right? And in that moment and the years subsequent after that, we realized that that's exactly what politics is all about. Right, centering people's lives and making the biggest difference in their lives. Absolutely, absolutely. So take me down that path real quick. I want to find out the bug that bit you guys as well, as far as politics is concerned. Mm -hmm. Take me down that path. Then. How did you get from uh, Barack Obama winning the president um, to being elected to the DNC, and now you're the Midwest Caucus uh, chair? So I'll, I'll fast forward this story since I took my time on the other one. All right. But I remember working for... The mayor of Minneapolis at the time. By the way, it was only six minutes. It didn't take long. Was it? <laughs> okay. Well, I'll dial this back a little bit then. Because this, this is also a kind of a, a, a pivotal moment in my own life. I was a senior in college. Wasn't really involved uh, in the college dens. Right? I just was trying to graduate. And I remember at the time, uh, R.T. Ryback, who's a former mayor of Minneapolis, uh, was the vice chair of the DNC at the time. And the DNC had called the president of the college dens, who was one of my best friends in college. Uh, that, that they would be in town. They would be up in Duluth, Minnesota, um, in May of 2012, just to ramp up the student 
engagement, the student vote. And they gave her only 24 hours notice to build a whole presence for these big time DNC officials. And so the day of the event, uh, I remember it being a really packed day. I had like six or seven classes that day. I had one hour break from 8 a.m. to about 9 p.m. And consequently, that hour break was the time where the event was happening. So my friend asked me, hey, can you come to this event? Like, there's not going to be many people there. I really want you, should, I want you to help me build a presence. And I'm like, I'm not going to this event. Like, I got to eat something. I've been in class all day. And she's like, but I really need you there. And I'm like, okay, I'll go. So we get into this room. You used to be that guy saying, I really need you there. Absolutely. So I, I remember that. I remember asking people <laughs> to do something they weren't comfortable with or do something that was inconvenient because it was something that I believed in. So I'm like, fine. 2012, it's about student votes. I want Obama to get reelected. I'll show up. So I get to this room that ended up only being about eight people there. And so it was a pretty, you know, no one's to blame except the late notice, but it was a pretty um, kind of small presence. But I remember getting in that room and RT and I just got into this really engaging conversation about making sure that, you know, the youth voice is represented and how do we turn on the youth vote and how do we make sure that college kids recognize that they can make a difference in all those other things. And we had such a good conversation, you know, we exchanged information and that was that. Uh, fast forward from May to October, our team came back with a couple of our senators, again, to turn off the vote two weeks before the election. And as he was making his speech, I sat in the front row and we kept making eye contact. I could tell that he had remembered me or at least recognized me. So after, after that, uh, after that speech, he came up and said, Hey, when do you graduate? I'm like, I'm done in a couple of weeks. He's like, what are you going to do afterwards? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know what I'm going to do. He's like, all right. He's like, after the election, make sure you work hard. Uh, make sure that we, you know, get Obama elected again. After the election, I'm going to get a hold of you. We'll talk about your future. Oh, I'm like, okay. He says this to all the graduating seniors. This is the most popular politician in our state. He's a DNC vice chair. There's no way that he's going to get a hold of me. The day after the election, he calls me. Hey, it's RT. I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> you know, the mayor of Minneapolis just called me and we had scheduled uh, an appointment to uh, to meet down at City Hall, in Minneapolis City Hall. So I'm all excited. I go to the store. I get a new shirt. I get a new tie. I put it all on Facebook. Like, y'all, I'm about to meet the mayor of Minneapolis. Blah, 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 blah. I take a bus from Duluth. You took a selfie. I, I, I didn't take a selfie. They weren't popular, but I had somebody else take a selfie. But I took a bus from my college to Minneapolis, which is about three hours. Three and a half hours on a bus. Marched right up to City Hall on the third floor where his office was. And I marched right up to the receptionist. And I'm like, hey. I'm Ron Harris. I got a meeting with the mayor at 1130. And they look at the, you know, look at the calendar. They're like, no, you don't have a meeting with him. I'm like, yeah, I do. Like, he called me in, in, in November. We scheduled a meeting. Like, I'm supposed to be here to meet our team. And they're like, oh, you're here for his open house. And I was like, dang. I was like, I thought I had a meeting with him. And they set me up on this open house. And the open house would be like 10 minutes with one person. And he'd bounce around and meet with as many people as possible. So I remember sitting there. I'm like, well, thank you, God, for this 10 minutes. Right? Here's my shot. This is a really cool story. We obviously 10 minutes goes by as fast as 10 minutes goes by. And he, uh, his chief of staff's knocking on the door like, Hey, you got to go to another meeting. And I'm like, and, and RT's like, Hey, no, give me a few more minutes. We still got some stuff to talk about. 10 minutes turned to one hour, an hour turned into two hours. We looked up, but we've been talking two, three hours. After this, he says, where do you want to work? I want to hire you. I ended up working for him in my first job. So, this is where the DNC stuff comes in. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You got a paid gig in the Democratic Party? No. Yeah. <laughs> this, 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 is, this, is, this is public government. This is, this is city hall. Oh, I get it. So I started working for him. And I had a re- there was one day where I had a tough day. And I remember walking to the local um, like happy hour spot to meet a friend. 
That's where I met Ken Martin, who's the chair of the Minnesota Party, who's now the chair of the ASDC. And who is I, a fun guy. He was a really great guy. He yeah. told me, he's like, look, if you show up, you can do whatever you want in this party. Just show up. And ever since then, I just been showing up. Showed up and uh, ran for different positions in the party. Showed up and started a campaign for different candidates. Just really wanted to show up and make a difference. I think that most people don't understand how inclusive the Democratic Party is. Yes. Um, in my first year, I got six either elected or appointed positions in the Democratic Party. The chairman of two legislative districts, vice chair of one senatorial district, uh, yes. county committee, yes. state committee, national committee. Yes. Did it in a year. I did it in a year. You got to show up. You got to show up. But we also, those of us who are already here, we also have to make it easier for people to show up. Absolutely. We have to make sure that there is a clear relationship between effort and art. Yeah, we got to make sure that if you put in the time, you get some sort of optimize. We don't want a bunch of people showing I'm stealing up. Stealing some of your lines after this. Steal all of them. <laughs> we don't want people showing up, you know, running in the hamster wheel, putting in all this effort, and then they they get nothing out of it. Yeah. Right? What example does that show for us? Exactly. That your work doesn't matter, and yeah. that fundamentally and to me your time is not true. The single commodity that will never get more of. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, as we move forward as a party, it is incumbent upon us to make sure that people's time is valuable, because right. for a lot of us. We don't have that much time. That's true. Right? It's true. It's true. I mean, every day takes five. And yep. Every day takes five. Megan, what bug <laughs> bit you? How did you get involved in politics? It, since a little girl, right? Yeah, so uh, I, I got the political bug when I was pretty little. I My mom used to always say, she still says it to me, um, she used to say, when you see a need, fill it. And she ingrained that in me from the time I was little. And so anytime that I saw that there was a need, I saw folks complaining about something, wanting something to be different, I just felt like I, I had to step in. I had a responsibility to step in. Um, so my, my first, I think, organizing, although I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. Eliminate um, No? No. Um, it, it, was a, <laughs> it was a petition against our school lunch food <laughs> in, in fourth grade. So wow. we, we had a in fourth grade. I had a teacher who was very into history and civics, and we were learning about the Constitution, the right peti for petitioning. And over and over and over again, I hear other kids in the class just saying, "You know, our our pizza is like cardboard. We just don't have really good hot lunch options. There's not a lot of healthy things here." And so I decided to start a petition, and. Uh, went around, passed it out to, to every classroom, and a bunch of teachers returned it to not the mailbox of my teacher, but to the principal. And so the principal called my parents and said, you know, we, we have an issue with your daughter. Um, she's she, she did this petition, and you're going to have to come in and talk to us about it. And I remember my parents saying, you know, we have to go into the principal's office. Just know you didn't do anything wrong. So we just, you know, we have to humor him and, and go in. And and we went in, and the first thing that happens is, is the principal turns to my parents and says, do you know that your daughter wrote this petition? My parents said, yes, we helped her write it. And, <laughs> and then, yeah, you know. win this battle. Right. And then, and then proceeded to talk about how, you know, there were certain steps to a ladder, and I started at the top, and I should have started at the bottom, and I could have gone through city council and done all these things. And I said, well, I ran for city council, but I'm not popular and I didn't win. And uh, wait, wait, in fourth grade? Yeah. And so, and so the way that I looked at it was just because I didn't win a title didn't mean that I shouldn't still be organizing and involved and and passionate about something. And so, 
I uh, gotta rewind. A fourth grader can run for city council? Or is there like a school student city? council? Student council. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. No, student council. Right. And, and so, you know, from there, it, it was probably four or five months later was when Bill Clinton ran for the first time. And for some reason, I got really captivated by that campaign and I became a really abnormal kid that, you know, while other kids were doing their jack-o'-lanterns that, uh, that were scary faces, mine were Clinton boards and were basically <laughs> political propaganda lighting up our whole, you know, front porch. And, and I just continued to stay involved and politically active. And as I got older, you know, knocking on doors and um, when Gore ran for office in 2000, I, I was very active in his campaign and, and Senator Clinton's campaign um, when I wasn't even old enough to vote. And I, I wrote a, an essay, entered a, a national essay contest on you know, what was the, the problem that the next president needed to, to really focus on. And I ended up being one of 150 students nationally that won the essay contest. We got to all go to the Democratic National Convention in L.A. And in hindsight, I'm not sure why my parents, like, trusted a 17-year-old to, to go there by herself. Um, but they did. And then, uh, you know, I, I did all of that. I did a lot of, of political engagement. And then I went to college to be a meteorologist. <laughs> And, and all my, my high school teachers were looking at me like, why? I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. And so I wanted to be the roaming reporter for the Weather Channel that, you know, was out chasing storms in my vehicle, you know, taking pictures. You wanted to be a tornado catcher. Right. And, and so I went to Penn State. If you catch it, that's bad news. Right. Don't catch it. Don't catch it. So I went to Penn. I went to Penn State, which was the best school in the country for meteorology. And three weeks into my freshman year was 9/11. And what I saw on our college campus in terms of the rise in Islamophobia really scared me. What I saw in terms of uh, the security measures that went in place on campus, because Flight 93 crashed right outside of of our campus, so we were we were in lockdown. Uh, on 9-11 because of that. And then seeing that the Patriot Act was getting pushed through, that was hi historical infringements on our civil rights and really wasn't being debated, and both Republicans and Democrats were pushing this through. You know, I started campus organizing around that. And my, my university professors finally came to me and they said, you were in the wrong major, that, that you were way too passionate about these these issues to be a meteorologist, you need to be in public policy. And so they recommended that I apply to the Summer Institute at Georgetown in political journalism. And I ended up getting in and came back the next year, changed my major, and uh, and then ended up running for president of College Democrats at Penn State. And they ended up bringing us into the 2004 election. And in that capacity, I ended up assuming the role of being the central Pennsylvania campaign coordinator for the Kerry campaign. And, and, you know, Pennsylvania then was, was a swing state and we had a lot of pressure on us to, to get that campus vote out. And we, uh, we played our cards right. We brought in Michael Moore to speak after our homecoming parade three days before the election and ended up getting sued by Fox News <laughs> because of it. And, um, 
because they were trying to make the the point that college campuses were influencing liberal ideology and you know influencing these elections. They they are, and what we were actually able- starting to turn against education in general. And we we saw that back then. I mean, they Fox News did an all-out assault on us and a lot of other Big Ten campuses that had these large political rallies. And uh, you know, we had what were called student allocation funds, where student groups could apply for funds to bring in different acts. Well, college Democrats hadn't applied for funds in twenty years. So I went to them and I said, "We haven't asked you for any money in twenty years." Give us $25,000 so we can bring in Michael Moore and we're going to rent out the entire basketball stadium to do this. And we did. And uh, and we ended up, at the end of the day, having the largest student voter turnout in Penn State history. And a lot of the reason they said that Pennsylvania went blue was because of that under uh, 30 vote and, and the mobilization that we were able to do. And um, but What does that tell you? The youth is in control. It, Our future is ours if we want to do it. If we talk to folks, it's right? People understand. If youth showed up as much as the older population showed up, yeah. elections wouldn't even be close. Yes. It wouldn't even be close. Yes. Like, every time. Yeah. Young people have an immense ability to shape the world. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. No. And why? Because they are now the largest voting block. Right. Now, millennials and the next generation is the largest voting block in the country. More than baby boomers. Literally, all we have to do is show up, and we can shape the world the way that we want. And the energy to knock on doors, and mm-hmm. and not being afraid to to you know pick up the phone and and do all of these you know organizing things. You just have to learn how to tap into that energy and to to delegate. And um, but I'll say that that when Kerry lost the the election, I thought I was done with politics. Like that that was. The biggest heartbreak, you know. I I wanted to to feel what you felt in two thousand and eight. You know, you put your, you know, so much of your life into this, and then you lose. And um, and, and we felt like it was a big step back for all of our anti-war efforts and all of our um our efforts around, you know, stopping Islamophobia and um, you know, right. And it, and it, it, yeah, I mean, look, in, in hindsight, I mean, I, I felt like I, I saw authoritarianism rising then and, and had to do something about it. And so, so I took a break from politics for a while and I thought I was done. Mm-hmm. And then slowly Obama started bringing me back in. And, you know, you couldn't help but being, uh, I guess, energized by him and inspired. And, and so, you know, I got out and I knocked doors, but I didn't really take on any leadership roles again until his 2012 re-election campaign, when I finally said, okay, I think I've recovered enough from 2004, mm-hmm. and, and the disappointment to finally, you know, dive in. And and that's what, what really put me into to once again getting really involved at the, in politics, particularly in the local level. And now you're running for president of the Board of Alder. Yes, that's yes, awesome. yes. Genevieve Williams, we're talking about the, the mug that bit us, the political yeah. mug that bit us, got us involved. How did you get here? And if you'd like, you can pick up the mic. No, I don't know if we want, if we want to go that, that far, because I, I sometimes get ahead of myself. I get a little excited if I'm holding the mic in my hand. Yeah, sure, I think you're good. Okay, I stood forward. So, um, for me, I was watching the 2000 elections um, as they were, as were, like the few months running up to the election, and then seeing the results and really being surprised um, 
with the Supreme Court decisions and the stuff that was going on in Florida. And I was actually um, 10 or 11 years old, depending on what part of the cycle that you're talking about. And so I was still really forming my understanding of government and learning in school that things were a certain way. And I was like, wait, this isn't really <laughs> supposed to be like this. And so I was really, really upset, um, really, really uh, engaged as far as trying to find new information. This was kind of early in the Internet and everything. You still had to do a lot of active research. You couldn't just passively let things wash over you. And um, then after 9-11 happened, I was really even more engaged in seeing the same things that you were talking about. I live in, a, in an extremely rural, very conservative area. And so just seeing kind of an unfettered, version probably of what you're you're referencing and so i felt like my community and my country was changing in a way that i didn't recognize and couldn't accept even like at that age i, I think it was that obvious you know where even a child could see this is not right so fast forward a little bit i have like uh, i pre-ordered a copy of the 9-11 commission report i still have it and it's got like i've highlighted everything notes in the margins and i started seeing us go into the war in Iraq and later Afghanistan and just seeing so many things happen that were the antithesis of everything that I had grown to believe that America was about, learning about it again at this rudimentary level of, you know, here's how it works, it's great, you're going to love it, and then seeing it in practice is so sloppy and so disheartening. And then fast forward, 2004 was my first active campaign. John Kerry, I was uh, raised by my grandparents and was having my die-to-the-wool uh, Republican conservative grandfather drive me into the Democratic headquarters every, almost every day. And uh, I was uh, 14, 15 during that cycle. And so I just kind of never stopped being involved. But as far as being involved um, outside of just sort of woodworking it, where you come out of the woodwork every four years, uh, not until 2014. So it was a... I don't think I ever had a chance to not be obsessed with politics. Just that they, so those from, things that happen in your formative years, you know, they, they shape you so much. So from 2014 to the DNC, you also got, you ran for office. I ran for U.S. Congress twice. I uh, jumped into a primary against uh, somebody that had run actually two cycles uh, as a Democrat for U.S. Congress that I didn't believe was progressive enough, was democratic enough. Um, that's really common in my part of the, the state or the country. And uh, lost by a little bit over a thousand votes. And that kind of got me thinking, okay, well, maybe I should try this again. <laughs> and uh, then later got the uh, endorsement of the person that I barely lost to. And we're good friends now. But, I mean, he would, we, you know, it's just, it is what it is. We're in different places, you know. So um, then ran in 2016. Uh, was it through the general election cycle and um, learned a lot. I, uh, I it was a horrifying year. I mean, it's like I <laughs> it was it was very interesting. I, I wouldn't wouldn't trade it for the world. But I think one of the things that really sticks out to me, and we were talking about this yesterday, and I'm sure you have a similar experience. Those people that were volunteering on that campaign now, like four of them are running for office now. I'm and she has the same story. Yes. And she's in the yes. same boat. That's what's interesting about Missouri Run, and I want to get to Minnesota, and I, I really want uh, some advice, actually. But uh, one of the interesting things that I'm seeing is that a lot of people, especially for me in 2016, that were phone banking across the state, they were showing up to go knock doors, 
or not running for office. Yes. Uh, and, and now I'm putting them on the podcast and, uh, you know, getting their word out there and spreading their message, amplifying their voice. So it, it's interesting how it kind of comes around, but how you've got to get involved before you can see that you really have the power to yeah. make a change, to make a difference. Um, and once you see that, it, it bites you. It bites you, and it's hard to get away from that. Really and, and I think for a lot of people, running for office isn't something that they naturally think that they're going to do, yeah. right? I and that, that it's this... I was going to get involved in politics. It's, it's this predetermined, exclusive club of who gets yeah. to participate and run. And and that's not the majority of most people. That brings me to my next question, but I'm going to let you finish. And, and so I think that when... Though Beyonce had the best... That's what I was going to say. It. I just smelt that. I didn't want to interrupt again. All right, go right ahead. But I, I think, you know, what I saw when I ran for election, I, I initially had to run as an independent to kind of go around the Democratic Party yeah. in spite uh, of having over a decade, you know, since I'm 10 years old working in Democratic politics. I thought we were going to wait until the next podcast to get in there. And, 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 <laughs> and, uh, but in doing so, people, you know, seeing some folks who say, you know, A, we don't have to wait our turn, and B, it's not this exclusive club. You know, anybody really can run. All you have to do is put your name on the ballot and stand for something. And, and work hard to make it happen, and and, and I let people know what you stand for. Right, they, here are your values. Right, and they're either going to vote for you or they're not. And, and so I think we see a lot of new people stepping up and running for office because we're suddenly showing that this is accessible, and it's not this predetermined conclusion of who's filling what seat yeah. and you know wait your turn and and we you know we only want this type of candidate. It's it's now who's who's that person that's actually going to be commissioned by the people to yeah. be in this spot. And, so and I think it's really exciting. Woman as an independent onto the DNC Democratic National Committee, that's really awesome. Um, the thing that you brought up is the exclusive club. And and I know how I pictured the Democratic and Republican Party before I got involved in politics. So I'm going to start with Jen. Jen, what was your in your mind's eye of uh, the, the um, say, the DNC types um, and, and the RNC types? before you really got dug in and got involved. How did you see them? Yeah, I would say I definitely saw it as sort of an elitist kind of group of people, not necessarily in a bad way, but just the people that were playing on a level that I wouldn't fit in with or would just make, I made the assumption, I don't think it was that far off, and that it was people that were highly accomplished, had been doing it for decades, um, just uh, seasoned political operatives, basically. I think I, I sort of saw it that way. Uh, you know, people that knew how to raise a lot of money, people that knew how to win elections, uh, without <laughs> sometimes without raising a lot of money. But um, I don't think I really put that much thought into it. I think it was more of just a, a, a concept, like a loose concept that I had. Megan, you talked about the, the exclusive club. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I had a lot of the same notion that unless you're, you know, a congressman or a senator or, you know, a staffer to somebody at that level, like this, this level of the party was not where you would be at. And then for, you know, Curtis, you and I got elected at the state convention. And, you know, it was a lot of organizing that went into that to making sure that, that the Bernie delegates showed up and, um, and, and voted for a slate. And we went into that meeting thinking, well, we're only going to have two people 
that that come from the the Bernie delegation getting elected to the DNC, and we ended up leaving with all four. And, Why was that? And, and it was well, a lot of it was because we we asked for a deal. You know, we we went to the party and we said the the state was split fifty fifty. Bernie Hillary give you know keep two DNC seats, give two Bernie DNC seats, and the response was no. And and then when it came to the state convention where they're actually elected, we we had 120 more Bernie delegates who showed up than Hillary delegates. And and so you know we all caucused as a delegation before this you know that meeting before the the state convention and said okay well we have a chance of having all four seats now so so what is it that we're going to do and kind of hatch that plan an hour before the state convention and then went in there with our 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 you know battle plan our game plan and and really ended up changing the party and, and not just from the DNC level but seeing that the Missouri State that, Party. Right, that so many new people getting elected to these county chairs and um, and sitting on the state party and just a different energy and engagement and, and folks that thought this was an exclusive club that they would never be a part of and suddenly they're they're representing their communities at the state. I mean, I think it's great. Absolutely. What was in your mind, Zach? Paint a picture of what you perceived of um, the upper echelon of politics. Oh, dude, I I totally felt this was an exclusive club. Right, I felt there were lots of donors, and there was a lot of—I don't want to say elitism, but there was a, there were elites present. Um, the difference, though, for me, I was when I first ran for the DNC, I was 22, 23, 22 or twenty-three. So for me, I was like, "Why not me?" These people are smart. These people care about their community. They have some experiences. I'm kind of smart. I really, really care about my community. I don't have as much experience, but the experience that I have, I think, is sufficient to make a contribution. Why not me? Right. Absolutely. The, what is I got to say, when I first got here, I thought, like, my first meeting, I had this extreme sense of kind of imposter syndrome. Just like, I don't belong in here. This is, I don't know if I'll ever be able to um, sort of fit in here. And then, um, probably even by the end of that first meeting, the, the week, um, and some of it had to do with what happened during the meeting, but it, I had this realization where it was like, I'm exactly who belongs here. I think we probably, I, I just have to say it because I think we probably all had that moment where we were like, damn it, you know, we are the people that need to be here. And I'm not saying that anyone else doesn't need to be here, but we need people from all walks of life, all types of voices, young people, people of color, women, you know, obviously just um, LGBTQ, you know, members of the differently able like you you come into this thinking it's a certain kind of group of folks and you start to realize that we're breaking some of those sort of uh traditional uh molds you know and i think that's really important to show not just for us but to show the american people that this is what the democratic party is I mean, listen to this i mean these folks on the dnc right i've met so many teachers yeah organizers labor leaders sanitation yeah. workers uh, social workers. I met so many of those types. And it, what it shows you is that we make up the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party, there's no tangible element of the party. There's no thing you can go to and say, doesn't make we make the Democratic Party. Exactly right. That is the deal, exactly. right? So the Democratic Party literally looks like the folks who run. show up and run the Democratic Party. That's it. You, you got to show up and you got to run. Those are the two things. That, I mean, you're not going to get anything done without that. My mind's eye, I think uh, I've probably been obvious about it. I think I've been vocal about it. 
in my mind's eye, the upper echelon of both the RNC and the DNC was a bunch of white guys sitting around a, a penthouse, smoking cigars and drinking the most expensive uh, drink that they could possibly get their hands on. Um, but then I got here. Then I got here. And then I started meeting everyone. And that's exactly what I saw. I saw the disabled. I, I saw uh, Native American, Indigenous, uh, uh, Pacific Islanders. You know, everybody from every walk of life uh, um, is here. And they have representation here. Um, so it, it completely changed my perspective. It completely changed my personal perception of it. And I'm not saying that, that uh, everybody who's still here has the best intentions in mind. Um, for for the ne next generation, we're not going to agree. We're not going to agree what's what we think a future should look like, and what somebody who's retired has a little bit better situation going on. They're they're not as grassroots as say myself. Um, it, that's going to be a different mindset. That's coming from a different background. So it, it's important as we were talking about the legacy Democrats and, and the newer um, you know energized Democrats that are coming in it, is that. We're going to have to have these ideas. We're going to have to hash it out. That's going to take time. And that's why we're taking time with the DNC to make sure that we're doing it right, not fast. And that's extremely important. Um, so I, I want to really get across um, that, that things are changing. I want people to understand what I'm starting to understand. Um, so Jennifer Williams, let them know. Let them know how you see things changing within the DNC. Well, one thing that is changing, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, every single meeting that I show up to, I see new faces, and I look for people that I knew at the last meeting, and, maybe, you know, someone else is now in their place. So, by virtue of that, I think it's just changing a lot, just because they're, you know, and that's not uncommon, there's some turnover there. But I would say that I don't know if there was really ever in reality as much pushback to the grassroots and progressive side as what there was perceived to be, but I can see that, yeah, I know, you, it's your show, no, um, but I can see that whatever I was noticing is really kind of gone away, and there's very much this moment of, like, we're all just glad to see each other, it's become, like, a, a, a thing that feels very familiar and uh, very welcoming and very much, like, we're here to do work. And uh, so I would say that that's, to me, what has, has well, changed, I like, in my personal experience. They're coming around to see that we're here to help, you know? And, yeah, like, yeah. well, and what I said when I was first running for vice chair, you know, it was this moment of all these new people came in with these, like, you know, grand ideas and so much hope and so much passion. And then they also sort of, they were sort of, you know, suppressed to an extent. But then there's this other side of the coin where people that have been here for decades We're trying to, to hold back the line and, you know, keep the rights, like, hold on to the rights that we have all worked so hard, you know, that people before us have worked so hard to gain. Hold that I think they felt a little life. insulted that people were coming in and, like, just called, like, painting this broad brush against and saying, you know, you guys have all, you know, you're, you're all bad, yeah. you know. And so I think that we've, we have... Um, mounted that and now we're, we're on the other side of it in my opinion i can see things changing where there's a lot less kind of bristle you know stiff posture and more open you know we're we're on the same team we know that we were always on the same team we had a real difference as to like who should be the quarterback 
thing is, is that um, if you're part of a club, any club, and you get new members in, and now they're taking positions of power, yeah. you're going to feel a little stepped on. Absolutely. You're going to feel like maybe your toes were stepped on. And I didn't realize that until they got here. And I kind of tried to put myself in their shoes in, in that perspective. And it took a lot of conversations to kind of see where they were coming from. And I'm sure it took a lot of conversations for them to see where I was coming well, once you move past, like, the kind of big man idea that we both, I think, I, that a lot of people are having to see the humanity in another person and that they care and that they're here because we've all got a personal story, you know. We've all got, like, something right here that, that makes us be here, you know. And that once I think once you recognize that, it becomes a lot easier to work with somebody, even if you don't always... See, I, and you have to start understanding that from their point of view, you know, yeah. because if I was here since Nixon or, or here for a long, long time, um, then I've earned my keep. Yeah. You know, and I understand. I understand where they're coming from. Well, with that. Years um, and originally, when I first got the seat on the DNC, I was a big pass the torch guy. You know, the, they need to pass the torch. They need to pass the torch. And now I'm understanding on the DNC, and I'm not saying I'm not going to pass the torch at the end of my four-year term. Uh, I, I'm not sure where we're at with that, so uh, let's not get excited. But uh, I see that I'm building relationships here. Yeah. And those relationships can be important or important to winning elections, and winning elections is important to getting things done. Um, so I don't know that... that I would want to give that up right away because I see that I can bring some good to this. And I see that just by me being here with a little bit of long hair, a little bit of rough around the edges, other people are seeing that regular people can run for these offices, can yeah. run and can't make a difference. So uh, I never really wanted to be an inspiration or an example, but along the way I kind of turned into it, you know. Um, but I do want to ask Rob. We need some advice in Missouri, man. You guys, you guys are doing really You're well doing with that Minnesota. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's, what's interesting is that when I'm at home in Minnesota, there's a lot of folks who have a lot of complaints about the party and about our process. And I can, I can identify those things and recognize that there's a lot of work for us to do. And then when I come to the national stage, I interact with other folks in other states. I recognize that we actually really got it good. Yeah. We have it really, really good. And I want to, I don't know. I don't know if I have a blueprint, but I'll just share, I guess, what we've done in our state that have helped us continue to be um, a blue state. Actually, we're not a blue state. We're a purple state that works really, really hard, right? That, to keep itself looking blue. I think all states are. I think, I think all, all states, states are. are. And if the blue works harder, they're going to win. If the red works harder, they're going to win. I think that's uh, right. Although they can kind of outspend us and, and pay more people to work. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, but, but, but we digress on that point. Uh, the first thing I'll say from a party perspective is Ken Martin, our chair, has been phenomenal um he has turned our party around um one thing that he tells me all the time he's like look he's like the party's a three-legged stool with equal weight activists donors and electeds and other relationships we got to make sure that we cater to all three to make sure that the stool is a wobble if we spend too much time with the donors and not enough with our activists that's going to be a wobbly stool if we ignore our partners our partners in labor or our elected officials but activists feel really really good about it it's going to be an un it's going to be an uneven stool so that's the first thing, right, that we've really prioritized that. I'd say the second thing, though, is that we've been really blessed to have massive progressive figures like Paul Wellstone, right, and Hubert H. Humphrey, right, and Walter Mondale. Wasn't Wellstone one of your mentors early on? I, or did unfortunately, that? that was Ken. I unfortunately okay. never had the opportunity to meet Wellstone. I was in seventh or eighth grade, eighth grade, when uh, he had passed away. However, 
Tim Burton. Exactly. So this is really cool. Wellstone probably mentored directly three, four hundred people, right? Directly, I think. Probably more than that. Even though I never got the chance to meet him or work on his campaign, I've been influenced by those he had influenced. So in a way, I feel like Wellstone had influenced me. Matter of fact, Paul Wellstone, the only seat that he had won before he was a U.S. Senator, was a DNC member in Minnesota. Really? That was it. Wow. Right? So that, uh, so we, having that legacy in Minnesota, I think, whenever we get off track, we always go back to, but what Wellstone, right? We point back to Wellstone. We point back to his ideas. We point back to his spirit, mostly, right? Maybe not his ideas in particular, but the spirit and the passion and authenticity of fighting hard for what you believe in. I would say the second thing we've done is really drilled down on elections, right? From the bottom to the top, right? Investing money in city councils and school board races and park board races, right? And then focusing, tar- targeting hard in the legislature. We're working hard to build a bench. We're not perfect. So folks at home listening to this, we're not perfect. We're working really, really hard at that. Uh, we've built relationships um, in, uh, in, other, in other areas, right? So right now we have a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say third party, but um, individual groups like swing lefts and indivisibles and activist nonprofits and things like that. And behind the scenes, we funded them without making it public because if people knew that democratic dollars were, were here, they might not have that much trust. Yeah. So we, behind the scenes, say, hey, we're going to help those organizers. Just the, the whole story. That's, o- that's okay, right? Because here's the deal. Instead of us dictating and charting the direction of the waters, we want to trust those who are on the ground who know best on how to, how to move, how to move their issue forward. Yeah, see, the difference is with the Missouri Democratic Party, we're not in a position to be able to fund those third-party groups uh, the same way. So we just got to build coalitions. Got to build coalitions, coalitions like-minded people that are willing to work hard. Um, I'll say this. I mean, like I said, what Keith Ellison did. I was just, I was just gonna say, you know, we've been really blessed to have a guy like Congressman Ellison. So when Keith Ellison was first elected to uh, the fifth congressional district in Minnesota, it was we have eight districts. It was the lowest turnout district in the whole state. He went to Ken Martin and told him, said, hey, I want to make sure that not, I want to turn our district around from being the lowest turnout to the highest turnout. And he did that in a cycle, right? Drill down in a really uh, uh, precise apartment program where you go into apartments and rack up as many votes as possible, right? So our district, uh, his district is probably one of the most liberal districts in the country. So this guy, and Ken Martin says this all the time, this guy can literally sleep for six months before the election and still win by 30, 40 points. But he knows that he needs to run up the score in our district to make sure that our statewide's win. And ever since he's kind of turned the ship, ever since he's turned the ship and really increased that voter turnout, we have not had a statewide Republican since. That means a lot. That you know what's important about Congressman Ellison? That he wouldn't take that nap. He, he wouldn't even, he can't. Not a chance. It's not even in his, it's not even in his blood. So I'll wrap this up by saying we've been blessed in Minnesota to have leaders like them, uh, charting the path. And when you have those people like, as role models, you are, it's, it's impossible not to follow in their footsteps. It's impossible not to see Wilson looking down at you or see Keith looking over to the side at you or see all these other people laser focused on what you're doing. It's impossible not to act in such a way that prioritizes people first, right? We have an example. Not only do we have an example, we have a responsibility, right? They, they've laid out the groundwork. We can't deviate from that chart. We can't deviate from that point. And they're not even just being that example from Minnesota because I can tell you, uh, from the time I've spent with Congressman Ellison, uh, I call him Keith. Uh, I know, I know. Time. He's it's Keith. Hard. If I said yeah. Congressman Ellison, he'd stop so, you and say, no, 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 it's Keith. Yeah. Yeah. So the time I've spent with Keith, the time I've spent with Ken Martin, 
um, they've rubbed off on me. It, it hasn't been a whole lot of time, you know. I mean, probably four hours collectively each, you know. Uh, and um, they've really given me the best advice they could in the short time that we had to get. Yes. Um, Whenever I get here, it's always, where's the Minnesota delegation? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like those folks have a wealth other. of knowledge and are the, are the best to hang out with. That's so. awesome. So that, the advice is just to get out there and get as many people voting as possible. I would say turnout, right? Turnout. Voter, voter turnout. And here's the thing. People think that the Democratic Party is struggling with this message. And I actually think that's dead wrong. I don't think the party's struggling with this message. I think that we're struggling with the mechanism by which we deliver that message. So what we need to figure out is how do we meet people where they're at? How do we create creative access points so that people can participate from where they are? Right? So if knocking on their door isn't reaching them, we got to start texting them. If that doesn't work, we got to find them online. If that doesn't work, we can organize them at some movie screening. I mean, we got to continue to get creative to meet people where they are in their politics. Right? And let them know that not only are we as a party willing to meet them where they are, but they also have agency and autonomy and power to shape the world that they want to live in. People are not going to participate if they feel like they don't have an ability to shape the outcome. If they think that their vote doesn't matter, if they think that their voice won't be heard, if they think their idea is stupid, if they think they're going to be ignored, that is not going to inspire anybody to participate. But if they think that when I say something, the world moves, when I have an idea, I see it reflected the next time I see this candidate, that they're going to come and see me, not in October before the election, but a year before the election, not to ask for anything except for my ideas, right, and my leadership, and my participation. That is going to be our pathway. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Now, before we get out of here, we've got about 15 minutes left, but I want to touch on everybody's um, uh, aspirations. So, Jennifer Williams, let's start on that side. Thanks. Um, no. <laughs> um, I think my aspiration, most of all, I want to stay involved, whatever that looks like. But I also want to continue to try to bring other people in and show people that, you know, regular folks belong here. And I don't just mean here, but at your county committee level, your congressional level, just involved in general, and specifically young people. Then I'm looking at the generation, I guess, Gen Z, and I am so inspired, I cannot contain it. So I'm really looking forward to kind of developing a mentorship uh, relationship with that generation, even though I'm not sure if they need our help. But um, those are my aspirations: is just staying involved and and keeping other people involved. Excellent. Hey. I, mean, I, I think my aspiration is always just to go where the people call me to go. Yeah. You know, I I wasn't sure when I initially ran for office a few years ago that I I was going to. And, you know, I, I tried to run for Democratic committee woman. I, I didn't get that position. And, um, but I had a lot of folks that, that when the alderman seat came open were just like, you need to do this. And, and really, you know, pushed me into it. And, and, you know, as I, as I run for president, it, it's been a lot of the, the same thing of, of folks saying, you know, you, you speak truth to power, you carry a message that we need to have heard in our, our local government, and, and you're, you know, whether it's been intentional or not, have inspired other people to run for office, and, and we're seeing more folks um, who really want to get involved in local politics, and, and so for me, it, it's, you know, I'm happy to serve as long as the people think that I am 
doing what they've elected me to do, and I'm happy to go into whatever position that folks think that, that I can best be effective in doing that, and I'm happy to support and to cultivate um, however many other leaders and elected officials and grassroots organizers as we can, uh, because it's, it's not just about me, it's about really building a movement and uh, and really building a collective group of people that can, can move our cities, our states, and our, our country forward. Creating a little unity with your community and making your community bigger. Yes. Right? Ron, I'm going to try to pull it out of you. I think we have a fantastic exclusive announcement from Ron Harris. So, um, what's your aspirations, Ron? So we'll start to disappoint the audience here. Um, if I can answer this question honestly, uh, I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure. I've really enjoyed uh, the work that I've done so far. Uh, I've been on the ground as an activist and an organizer. Uh, I've been in the halls of City Hall and our state capitol lobbying for progressive policy or lobbying for uh, common sense policy. Um, I've, I'm, in, I'm in government now. Uh, I work for the city council, uh, president of Minneapolis, and I love that job. I have the best job in the whole city, I feel like. Um, but fundamentally, if I'm being really honest with you, I have a, a baby sister who just turned 16 a couple months ago. And I have a niece who's turning five next month, and her little sister's about a few months old. And since they've been born, I've just had a commitment to shaping a world that they can feel safe in. They're shaping a world that they will get paid equal, uh, equal pay for the work that they do. They're shaping a world where they can walk the streets and not have to worry about anything. Shaping a world where whatever ambitions that they have, there's literally no limitations to them. Right, these these three black women choices about their own reproductive yeah, rights, their own choices about their own bodies. Right, these three young black women, uh, in my opinion, have the world in their hands. Right, the world is their oyster, and whatever whatever that looks like for me moving forward, whether it's staying working kind of behind the scenes, working for other candidates, or if it's starting a nonprofit, or if it's running for office, I I have no idea. I'll tell you this one thing though: I think it's a mistake when people line up their entire lives for a singular ambition. Because you put the blinders on and you miss out on all these other lateral, if you will, experiences and opportunities that will make you a better end goal anyway. Right? So instead of looking at it as a finer point, I actually want to start at the finer point and go at it wide. Right? And build up as many experiences as possible. Whatever. Here's the thing. People ask all the time, what's your five-year plan? What's your end goal? And I think that... I don't have a five-minute plan. You see what I'm saying? And so even job interviews or whatever the case is, and I always say... Instead of having a specific five-year plan, I'm actually going to focus on a, uh, instead of, you know, life goals, I'm going to focus on a life philosophy. And if I stay along these philo this philosophy, no matter where I end up, it's the right spot I'm going to be in. If I, if I live my life according to these values, no matter what occupation, no matter what career, no matter what space I find myself in, that's going to be the right space to be in. And so I'm not focused on an office, I'm not focused on a job, I'm not focused on an ambition. I'm focused on living out my values and living out this life philosophy that uh, I have out here. Well, let me ask you something. If the path of your life led you down a road that uh, allowed you to possibly be the first African-American governor of Minnesota, um, would you not do it? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, there's a lot There's a lot of black folks right now in office that would be wonderful governors, but if that was an opportunity and that's where my life lent itself to, I'd take that on as a challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely believe it. Uh, and it's interesting what you said about your family because uh, that's my end game. Book. That's my end game. Book, is my daughter seeing this? My daughter seeing that I am standing up 
and trying to do something to better her future. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so important. And that's why I've actually created this show is because I want to amplify that message to more people than just my daughter. I want them to see that there are people out there that are really trying to make a difference, and it's not going to have anything to do with me. I'm planting seeds. I'll never sit under the shade of that tree. I get it. I know that. But I'm going to fight for things that some people may see out of the box. But it's the future that I perceive, and it's a better future in my mind for my my daughter, my grandchildren, um, and, and the uh, nation in the world. So, so that's why I'm here. That's exactly why I'm here. And this has been a fantastic episode, guys. You guys have been fantastic, guys. And uh, this was special for me because we're in D.C. right now. I brought the podcast out to D.C. Belly of the Beast. This thing can set up anywhere, and we were able to bring this thing to D.C. for the DNC. Next Gen Dems is what you're watching. I want to make sure we get a plug for the Stone's Throw uh, right here in Washington, D.C. at the Marriott Wardman Park. Um, and I'd like to thank my guests today, Genevieve Williams, the Vice Chair of the Missouri Democrats Party, Megan Green, uh, Megan Aaliyah Green, um, who is an elected DNC member. She's also an older woman of the 15th Ward, and she is running for president of uh, the, the, I keep wanting to say city council. <laughs> I keep wanting to say city council because it is that way. Um, yes. Of the Alderman Association. Board of Aldermen. Board of Aldermen. <laughs> I guess so one of these days we'll And Ron, as the chair of the Midwest Caucus within the DNC, you've been doing a fantastic job, brother. We're going to start maybe doing some monthly meetings or at least phone call um, to make sure that we all stay in contact and we're all working for the betterment of all people. Um, thank you all so much for watching. Thank you all so much for coming and, and being on the show and, and being here to uh, reach out to the people and let them know that we are trying to create change. We are getting progress, even if it's not as quick as they would like to see it. Uh, it's not as quick as we would like to see it, but there are processes involved. Good things are happening. And uh, from the stones throw right here in the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C., Wardman Park at the Marriott, I'm Curtis Wilde. This has been Next Gen Dems. Good work, y'all. Good work. That was fun. It was fun.